Well, please turn with me now in God's word to Exodus chapter 20. On page 74 in the church Bible, Exodus chapter 20. And we're looking this morning at the ninth commandment in verse 16 of Exodus 20. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We're continuing on this morning and throughout the summer uh, in our studies in the Ten Commandments as we come towards the end of that sermon series. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The language here is legal language. In ancient Israel, there were no detectives. There was no police force. And so most convictions depended solely on the evidence that was provided by eyewitnesses. And so the truthfulness of those witnesses was absolutely vital. There were 13 crimes in the Old Testament that carried the death penalty. And for that reason, it was so important to protect the innocent. It was so uh, vital that the evidence of witnesses was true and trustworthy. But although that is primarily the context of the language here, we shouldn't restrict the scope of this commandment just to the courtroom because it has a much, much wider relevance and application than that. In fact, in Deuteronomy 5 and verse 20, where this command is restated, uh, Moses uses a slightly different Hebrew word, uh, not the word false witness, but the word frivolous or vain or empty. And so this commandment uh, includes all of the many various sins of speech. And in fact, I meant to go and count this morning, but I forgot to do it. But I meant to count uh, in the larger catechism's exposition of the ninth commandment. Uh, there is a long, long list of all the sins that are forbidden by the ninth commandment. And then in the next question, uh, an even longer list of all the duties that are required by this commandment. And it is not just three or four or five uh, I, I think from memory that there are uh, more than 20 sins that are forbidden and duties that are required by this ninth commandment. It is extremely wide in its application. And it is extremely relevant to the world in which we live today. Our world is full of lies. Psalm 116 verse 11 says, All mankind are liars. Lying is so commonplace, in fact, that it hardly shocks us anymore when we read of yet another politician, even a prime minister, who has lied to Parliament. Yet another businessman involved in some shady business practice. Another athlete who has lied about taking drugs. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, lying is the most prominent characteristic of the non-Christian life. 
whether that's true or not, or just an example of the way that Lloyd-Jones, whatever he was preaching on, he saw as being the most important truth uh, in the whole of Scripture. Uh, It certainly deserves to be a candidate, doesn't it? Lying is the most prominent characteristic of the non-Christian life. It is second nature, first nature even, to the majority of unbelievers. Uh, Each week I uh, read the Spectator magazine, which uh, isn't really aimed at my particular demographic. It, I think, is aimed more at uh, upper middle class uh, members of society. Uh, It's certainly read by very respectable members of society. And there's a, a column, the Dear Mary column in the Spectator, where people will write in and ask questions about the various social dilemmas. It's the upper middle class equivalent of an agony ant column. Uh, They're asking for help from Mary with all kinds of social dilemmas about etiquette. Usually it involves whether they should tip the cleaner that comes in at the country house that they're staying in. That gives you an idea of the kind of people uh, that read The Spectator. But it's interesting, it's tragic that more often than not, Whatever the question, the advice that Mary gives, the solution that she proposes involves lying of one sort or another. That's the respectable way to deal with problems. You tell lies. There's no embarrassment. There's no apology about it. Very creative ways, very sophisticated ways, very polite ways of lying. But the bottom line is, you deal with this problem by lying. And one of the things that is most characteristic of the Christian is that he or she speaks the truth. We worship the God who is truth. We're born again by the word of truth. We're being sanctified by the word that is truth. We live according to the truth. The spirit who indwells us and empowers us and who is sanctifying us is described as the spirit of truth. We're called to stand out from the world and to be holy. And perhaps there are few ways in which that is more obvious. That we speak the truth to one another. That we do not lie. So that's what I want us to think about this morning. You shall not bear false witness. And I want to ask two questions. Uh, We'll spend most of our time on the first. How do we break this commandment? First of all, how do we break this commandment? I do encourage you to go home and read those questions and answers in the larger catechism and to see uh, the the whole range and even that is just a representative sampling uh, of the ways in which we break this commandment but let me just pick nine things the nine perhaps most common ways in which we are tempted to break this commandment for one thing there is the outright untruth the the bare-faced lie Children are particularly prone to this kind of lying, aren't they? Did you eat the chocolate bar? The child's face is ringed with chocolate and there's chocolate all over their hands and they say, no, 
No, I didn't touch the chocolate bar. And now maybe as adults, we don't find it so easy to tell outright barefaced lies under normal circumstances. But we need to be careful, don't we? There are certain situations when there is a huge pressure on us to lie, when lying, telling an outright untruth becomes a very appealing option. The truth can often be embarrassing or untidy or inconvenient. And so most adults resort to what we euphemistically describe as little white lies to save face or to save discomfort. But they're still lies. They are outright lies and it's still a sin to speak them. There's the lie of convenience, isn't there? Somebody phones and you can't be bothered talking to them. So you say, oh, I'm I'm sorry, I'm I'm just on my way out. Or you, you give one of your children or your spouse a message and you say, just tell her I'm not here. Maybe at school you boys and girls are tempted to do this. You forgot to do your homework. You forgot some assignment, uh, some assignment that ought to have been done. And you don't want to get into trouble. And so you tell a lie and you say, oh, I'm sorry, I was sick last night and I couldn't do it. No matter what the consequences may be, we must tell the truth. There's the lie of tact. It's another form of outright barefaced lying, isn't it? The question that every husband dreads, do you like my dress? Does this make me look fat? Of course it doesn't, but it would be easier, wouldn't it, just to say, yes, it's a beautiful dress than to tell the truth. But we have to be honest, whatever the consequences. Now, that doesn't excuse tactlessness. You don't have to say, no, I don't like that dress. It is the most revolting dress I think I have ever seen in the history of dresses. It is a vile color. It is completely shapeless. You don't have to say that. Surely we can find something positive to say. But whatever we say, here's the point, it must be true. It must be true. Outright lying. And then there's exaggeration. There's nothing wrong with exaggeration for rhetorical effect. Nobody thinks that you're being accurate, that you're, that you're speaking the literal truth. There's no intention to, see, to deceive on your part. There's no expectation that anyone's going to take you literally. When your children come in and say, I'm starving. You don't immediately dial 999 and get them hooked up to some sort of drip because you you think that they're malnourished and in danger of collapse. You know that it's rhetorical exaggeration. But there are times, aren't there, when we do exaggerate to give a false impression. We're trying to mislead. Maybe you're late for an appointment because you didn't leave on time. And on the way you encounter a bit of heavy traffic. It would be easy, wouldn't it, to exaggerate the heaviness of the traffic as the reason for your delay. It's true to say that there was a lot of traffic, but in fact you're late because of your laziness or because of your lack of organization. There's always a danger, isn't it, when we're involved in arguments that we exaggerate the fault of the other side and we minimize the part that we played. That's a great temptation for husbands and wives, isn't it? 
or for parents and children. Oh, you always do this. That's the sort of, you always say that. You never encourage me. That's not true, is it? I'm sure it's not true. It's an exaggeration. Then thirdly, there's the partial truth. Partially telling the truth. Deliberately not telling the whole truth can convey a lie. If you say to a friend tomorrow, for example, our minister was sober in church yesterday and his sermon was well prepared. Now, both of those things, I assure you, are true. But if you say that and only that, it implies something that isn't true, isn't it? You're you're, you're leading the person towards the conclusion that the minister is usually not sober or well prepared. It's like the devil, the father of lies, who said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, you will not surely die. That was a partial truth, wasn't it? In a sense, they didn't drop dead the moment that they bit into the fruit. But it wasn't the whole truth. And it's not what he intended Adam and Eve to understand. The media, of course, are masters of the partial truth. Lifting a partial quotation out of context. Finishing it a few lines short. Making it sound very, very different from its original context. But we're all good at it. We make someone appear in a bad light by just leaving an important piece of information out. Some redeeming truth in the story that we're telling about them. We can caricature people that we don't agree with. We can easily distort their argument and make it seem facile and foolish. It's a form of bearing false witness. It's a partial truth. Fourthly, there is the silent lie. The silent lie. We can lie by not saying anything at all. If someone is slandering someone or gossiping about someone to you, you ought to stand up for them. If you know the truth, you ought to stand up for them and set the record straight or at least suggest that they be given the benefit of the doubt. If you say nothing, you're giving the impression that you agree. Or perhaps you young people, when you're at school or when we're at work and people are talking about homosexuality or transgenderism and they're claiming that it's just another kind of lifestyle, that there's nothing wrong with it, it's so easy, isn't it, to keep quiet, not to give our opinion because we are afraid of being branded a bigot. But we're lying. We're giving the impression that we agree with what's being said. Fifthly, there's the holy lie. The holy lie. Someone has said in the past, Christians don't tell lies, they just sing them. And I wonder how often that's true of you and me. We thought about this a little when we were thinking about the third commandment. Did you mean what you sang in the opening psalm? Do you remember what you sang in the opening psalm? 
about praising God and rejoicing in him first and foremost with all your heart. What a good and fitting and appropriate thing that is. Is that really what you think? Or were you bearing false witness? Do we put on a front when we go to church, when we pray in public, when we take the Lord's Supper? You're a member of the church. You've taken vows. You're professing to the world that you belong to Jesus Christ, but maybe on the inside you know that you're bearing false witness because you're not really a Christian. You're not really converted. How often do you tell someone, I'll pray for you? It's so easy to do it, isn't it? Just as a, a kind of a reflex. It's the right thing to say. It's the expected thing to say. It's the pious thing to say. It's an encouraging thing to say. But how often is it a lie? Because we won't pray for them. We know that we're not going to pray for them. We know that we'll forget about that before they've even left the room. We must mean what we say. The vows that we take at our children's baptisms, when we come into the membership of the church, when we're ordained and installed as elders and deacons, when we marry, we must follow through on those vows. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 5 says, it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not keep it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Gossip. There's a sixth way in which we break this commandment. When we pass on news, when we pass on a rumor, just for the satisfaction of doing it. It's nothing to do with us. It's nothing to do with the person that we're telling it to. It's just because we get a buzz out of being the one who has the news and who's able to pass it on. Proverbs 18 verse 8 talks about that, doesn't it? The words of a gossip are like delicious morsels. The nicest, sweet, uh, the, 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 the juiciest piece of steak, uh, the, the most delicious bun that you can imagine. That's what gossip is like. They're like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. And it's, interesting, it's important to understand that gossip may be true. The story, the news, the rumor that you're passing on, it may be true. But you're telling it for an evil purpose or for an idle purpose. The Apostle Paul links gossips with busybodies and idlers in 1 Timothy 5.13. More often than not, like Chinese whispers, the story gets embellished, doesn't it? It gets distorted as it gets passed on. And so before you know it, you are bearing false witness. You are telling something that isn't true. But even if it is true, that doesn't mean that you have any business repeating it, listening to it, or repeating it. Seventh, slander. Slander. Slander is a false report that is spread maliciously to hurt another person. Gossip may be true, a true report that is spread just for an idle purpose or for an evil purpose. Slander is a false report that is spread deliberately to hurt another person. And there is something peculiarly satanic 
about slander. Because the name Satan, the word Satan in Hebrew means the slanderer. It it is typical of the devil. His identity is bound up with slander. I wonder, do you know someone and they are a slanderer? They are a Satan. Sort of person who's always ridiculing others. Always belittling them. Always doing them down. It's a sign of deep insecurity. This is a person who needs to put others down to make him or her feel better about themselves. He has to push others down to lift himself up. Whenever we speak about someone in a distorted way, when we misrepresent their character or their words, Or their actions. Deliberately to make them look bad. Or when we report something that they did. Something that they said. But we leave out mitigating facts. That's slander. And it is a peculiarly satanic sin of speech. Eighthly, a quarrelsome spirit. A quarrelsome spirit. And I mention this because sadly you do find this amongst reformed people. It is a besetting sin, I think, of reformed churches. Because it is a temptation for those who care about doctrine. But we need to remember that the devil often takes our strengths and tries to use them against us. Brian Edwards, in his excellent book on the Ten Commandments, puts it like this. He says, there are some who love nothing better, or so it seems, than a good religious row. They are brave crusaders for their cause, and they consider that they alone have the truth. And they will either spend their time being provocative in order to create disagreement Or they will criticize all who do not agree with them precisely. They are argumentative, quarrelsome, suspicious of everyone, dismissive of anyone, and malicious in their so-called spiritual innuendos. That's what a quarrelsome spirit looks like. And it's condemned again and again in Scripture. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy about false teachers. And one of the things that characterizes these false teachers is that they have an unhealthy obsession, an unhealthy interest in controversies and arguments that result in only envy, quarreling, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction. 1 Timothy 6, 4 and 5. And Edwards says the danger is that actually they may not be false teachers on everything. They may be right about some things. They may be championing the truth in some ways. But he says their unhealthy obsession with controversy does little to preserve the truth. It does nothing to advance the gospel. It does nothing to build up the church. And those who spend time quarreling about words misrepresent God 
and they ruin those who listen. 2 Timothy 2 verse 14. A quarrelsome spirit. Bearing false witness. Giving the impression this is the thing that matters to God. This is the thing that we've got to get right. And if you're not right on this, then you're wrong on everything. And there's no point listening to anything that you have to say. It's a breaking of the ninth commandment. And then ninthly, empty talk. Empty talk. False testimony in Deuteronomy, as I said at the beginning, also refers to what is worthless. To what is useless. To what is unfounded. It includes speech that is empty of value. And I wonder... Uh, and this, was, this, this comment was made by uh, an outstandingly godly elder of this congregation decades ago. I wonder how much of our talk as Christians is empty. This elder used to, uh, he wasn't criticizing the fact that people were staying for a long time after the services to talk. But he did, he used to say, I wonder how many of us are talking about the sermon. And many people are talking about spiritual things. That doesn't mean that that's the only thing that we can ever talk about. This doesn't forbid light conversation, small talk. It doesn't mean that we can only ever talk about theology and doctrine. It doesn't mean that we can't tell jokes or enjoy light-hearted banter. At times, in moderation, in its proper place. But we need to be careful, don't we, that this doesn't become our main or even our only mode of conversation. Something that concerns me about our young people. It seems to be, I think, from what I've heard, it does seem to be an issue. It does seem to be a problem uh, amongst the, the, the wider young people in our church, that banter is the great thing. And that's the mark of whether you've had a good night or not. How much was the banter good? Was the crack good? Was it fun? It's the quality of, of a good person. Are they fun? Do you enjoy laughing with them? It's not the most important thing. And I wonder how much of our conversation falls into this category of empty talk. Well, there are many, many ways in which we might be tempted to break this commandment, but I suggest these uh, as I think some of the ones that are most common uh, and most relevant to us. But then, uh, secondly and more briefly, let's ask the question, why are we not to bear false witness? Why are we not to bear false witness? And I want to turn your attention to two passages in the New Testament. First of all, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Here's the first reason why we are not to bear false witness. Why we are not to do these things. Colossians 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another, 
seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There's the first reason why we're not to lie to one another, why we're not to bear false witness. It's because we're new people. If you're a Christian, you're someone who has been profoundly and radically changed. And lying simply isn't part of your DNA anymore. Before we became Christians, lying was second nature to us. But Paul says you've taken off the old man and you've put on the new man. And what does the new man look like? He doesn't lie. He's being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. That's why he doesn't lie, because he's becoming more and more like God himself. And what is God like? Well, as we've thought already, one of the things that is absolutely essential to God's being is truth. Titus 1 verse 2, he is the unlying God. Hebrews 6 verse 18, the God for whom it is impossible to lie. Psalm 12 verse 6, we've, sang it, we've sung it already. Every word of God is perfectly pure. John 17, 17, your word is truth. That's the God that we worship. That's the God into whose image we're being transformed. And as God's children, we are to imitate him. And so our words must be true words. Christians can't have anything to do with lies. We're commanded to tell the truth here in the ninth commandment, not because it's nice, not because it's a better, more pragmatic social arrangement for society, although it is. We're commanded to tell the truth because God is truth and we are being renewed in his image. And when we lie, we're being like the devil, the father of lies. Lying is anti-God. It is the very opposite of what God is in his being as well as in his words. And so if you're a Christian, do not lie to another person because you're being renewed in the image of God himself. And then uh, if you just turn over to Ephesians 4 verse 25, uh, in some ways this is a parallel passage. Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 25, here is another motivation, another reason why we're not to lie and bear false witness. Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And here comes the reason. For we are members one of another. Not to lie because we are members of one another. This is one of Paul's great concerns in Ephesians chapter 4. It is the unity of the church and the sins that he lists here uh, from verse 25 of chapter 4 all the way through to chapter 5, verse 18, these are not sins that are just plucked out of the air at random. They're mentioned by Paul because they are all parts 
because they, they're mentioned by Paul because they all damage and undermine and corrode the unity of the church. And that's spelt out for us here in verse 25 about lying. We are part of the same body. We are members of one another. And that's why we must not lie to one another. If the human body lies to itself, it is catastrophic. That's one of the the, the terrible things that drugs will do. They lie to the brain. They make the brain lie to the body. So that people who are on drugs, they think they can fly. They think they can stand out in front of a speeding train and not be hurt. And that is a fatal deception. It will destroy them. John Chrysostom, uh, one of the early church fathers, he put it like this. If the eyes see a poisonous snake lying in front of us, will they lie to the feet and pretend that it is cool grass? No, of course not. The body doesn't lie to itself because if it lies to itself, it will end up killing itself and hurting itself. And Paul says it is just like that in the church. We are all members of the one body. And if we lie to one another, we are hurting ourselves. It's like cutting your nose off to spite your face. It's, it's, as one writer puts it, it is a stab in the vitals of Christ's body. When we lie to one another, we're disrupting the harmony and the peace of the body. It poisons relationships. It disturbs our fellowship. And so there's a second powerful reason why we are not to lie and bear false witness. We must take lying seriously. This is not a minor sin, if we can even categorize any sin as minor. This is a devilish and destructive sin that strikes at the very heart of God's holy character. It's a sin that threatens the unity of the whole body of Christ. And friends, we need to train ourselves to hate lying. We need to be allergic to it. We need to have our our radar on high alert We need to be appalled by it. We need to be revolted by it in ourselves first. And anyone who thinks that they do not lie is lying to themselves. You are fooling yourself. You are self-deceived if you think that you do not lie. We all lie in all kinds of ways. And we need to hate it in ourselves and we need to be revolted by it in others. We need to teach our children, those of us who are parents, from, the, from the, their youngest age that lying is a dreadful, wicked thing to do. We need to show our children that we do not take lying lightly. Make it one of the sins that you punish most severely in your home. Cut it out as early as possible, as far as possible. Make it clear to your children that lying is one of the very worst things that they can possibly ever do. Studying the commandments can seem like a very negative subject for a Sabbath morning. 
studying this ninth commandment, especially when we've looked at nine different ways in which we might break this commandment, I'm painfully conscious, can seem very negative. And it would be if we stop there and leave out Jesus Christ. This is why uh, I, I took our last communion season to think about how Christ fulfills the commandments and saves us from the punishment that's due to us for breaking the commandments. Like all the commandments, this ninth commandment exposes our sin and our failure. Of course it does. But it doesn't leave us in despair. This commandment, like all the others, ought to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ afresh, all over again. The ninth commandment shows us yet another facet of the Lord's beautiful, perfect, holy character. The Lord Jesus who said, I am the truth. And we've glimpsed this morning, just glimpsed something of the breadth and the depth of this commandment. And that should make us marvel at the Lord Jesus, shouldn't it? He kept this commandment. Go home and read the larger catechism. All the sins forbidden and all the duties commanded. He did all of that perfectly. In the middle of a world full of lies and surrounded by liars. Those nine examples that we thought about of ways in which we might bear false witness. Never once. Not even in the tiniest way did Jesus Christ ever do any of those things. And we should rejoice that he did it for us so that his record of perfect truthfulness might be given to you and to me. And it, it drives us to give thanks, doesn't it, that on the cross he took upon himself the guilt of every single careless word that you or I have ever spoken or typed Every lie, every piece of gossip, every slander that we have ever uttered, he paid the price for it all. He suffered the infinite wrath of God for every single one of those sins of speech. And so this commandment, like every commandment, should fill our hearts with joy and wonder and gratitude and praise and love for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, upon our lips' door, keep a watch. O Lord, our mouths do guard. We pray, Lord, that you would do this even now, as we uh, begin to talk with one another, uh, we pray that you would protect us from the devil who will no doubt be doing all that he can to tempt us 
to commit the very sins that we have just been thinking about. We pray, Lord God, that you will set a guard upon our mouths. We pray that our speech may be true, that it may be wholesome, that it will be only what is good for building one another up. We pray that you would protect us all from a quarrelsome spirit, from gossip, from slander, from boasting, from empty talk. We pray that you will help us to put into practice the things that you have said to us in your truth this day. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who empowers us to do this. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have forgiveness for the countless ways in which we have sinned with our mouths. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.